90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Just went on my last field trip of the year. I know I've said that a lot, but I decided to go on one more. <laughs> are you sure it's just one more? I'm sure. I'm sure this is it. <laughs> where, where was this one to? Well, it was basically to a barbecue joint in southern Oklahoma, but we, <laughs> we looked at some rocks along the way. Uh, it was for my native science class. I've actually never taken them on a field trip before. I mean, we go to the museum, but um, I decided to take them on sort of the intro geology field trip, uh, and it was super great. I, I don't teach all the same things, so I wasn't quite sure how everything would translate. We went down to the Arbuckle Mountains, um, but it translated really well. I had a small group, which is fine with me. I'd rather have people that are interested than not going on these trips. And um, so we took a couple of vans and it was a great time. We made ourselves sick on barbecue and fried pies. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, did you stop by the fried pie place we in did. Davis? Because that's legendary. <laughs> yes, they required it. It was hilarious. And I usually don't stop just because when I have 30 students and stopping at this fried pie place, while they are fast, they're not that fast. But since I only had, you know... 11 students i said we'll stop at the fried pies too and so they ate their little hearts out it was great <laughs> yes i missed that place oh, i would wonderful. say we'll link it in show notes but i'm pretty sure they don't have a website oh no that you would be surprised um they've actually branched out to a lot of oklahoma they have quite the intricate network of franchisees oh well okay well we'll link it in the show notes yep yep <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will get that address to you. So that's what I did this weekend. How about you? Oh, I've just been, you know, really swamped. We had that workshop that we taught, which went really well. Excellent. And we're gearing up to do two more <laughs> almost right in a row. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? So, yes. Well, I know uh, you're coming to OU, but where else are you going? Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, well, that's exciting. So if we have listeners at OU or Wisconsin-Madison... Let me know, because I'll be in town, and uh, we'll go get a beverage. <laughs> of their choosing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's that's really most of what I've been up to, that and, of course, messing with some uh, electronics, like always. As always, yes. Um, it's <laughs> So this sort of encapsulates, I saw this meme the other day that sort of encapsulates the... Um, April at a university, and it said, April showers are really the tears of students trying to raise their grades at the last minute. <laughs> oh, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, <laughs> I started thinking again about some of these geology fundamentals that a lot of students are missing, and I thought that we would talk about a very important part of the rock cycle that we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> yeah, and well, we almost wrote these show notes up simultaneously. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> which is not surprising. <laughs> which is not surprising. But we also have put it off because metamorphic rocks are the one type of rock that we haven't talked much about as compared to igneous or sedimentary. And there's a reason. <laughs> Basically because neither one of us know anything about them. <laughs> I won't say don't know anything about them, but neither of us have directly worked oh. with them much. Oh, that's so true. Um, so I'll blame this on the fact that I'm very focused on, you know, place-based geology, and we don't really have metamorphic rocks here in Oklahoma, so that's what I'm going to, I'm going to blame my lack of knowledge on it. <laughs> now you, yeah, however, gonna... have less of an excuse. 
I, I'm going to blame mine on, I never really saw The Rock on anything but a seismic trace. <laughs> um, so Pennsylvania, lots of metamorphic rocks all through the Appalachians. There are tons, actually, the best metamorphic rocks. But I will say there's a lot of vegetation covering them up, too. So I'll there, There's a lot of vegetation. We, we took a... <laughs> orientation to grad school field trip when i started my phd where we saw a lot of these rocks from like the taconic orogeny ah, mm-hmm. and, and you Allegheny. could see some yeah and you could see some pretty wild stuff going on in these things and let me tell you metamorphic metamorphic rocks are complicated <laughs> they are um <laughs> i won't say that's why we don't talk about them but they are complicated and definitely when i teach them i find myself glossing over a lot of things with metamorphic rocks <laughs> to say the least i mean it's a third of the rock cycle it's something we should give attention to but you know sedimentary rocks are so much cooler well i i might argue against that and go for <laughs> you know spewing lava but <laughs> We should talk about what is a metamorphic rock. So we've we've covered that sedimentary, you know, all these little pieces that get cemented together or precipitated somehow. And we've talked about igneous being cooling from some kind of melt. But metamorphic Mm -hmm. is, well, it's what happens when these get altered. Right, exactly. So just what you just said, metamorphic rocks are rocks that have parents. Um, some sedimentary rocks have pe- parents, if you're talking about, like, shells, I guess. But right. um, metamorphic parents are either igneous or sedimentary rocks, and we call these parents protoliths. So they get basically heated and squeezed and turned into a new rock. And not just a new rock, but sometimes a rock with an entirely different mineral assemblage. Yes. Now, that's where stuff gets very complicated. Um, so we, we categorize, because this is what we do, because we're scientists, right? Um, just like igneous rocks, metamorphic rocks get characterized by what their minerals are and then the texture they have to them. So that's sort of what we're going to talk about is how do you get, you know, how do you change a rock without melting it all the way down? And how do you get new minerals out of that? Um, So that's something that we use to categorize metamorphic rocks. And then these metamorphic rocks give us insight into what the protoliths were, so what the rocks were there before, and also the tectonic processes that these rocks underwent. Right. And to make a metamorphic rock, it's really, it's a relatively delicate balance. Because (laughs) if you heat the rock too much, or you squeeze it too much, or definitely if you do both, you're going to end up with melt again, and you just reset everything to be an igneous rock. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. It's like, uh, you know, you heat it up, but not too much. You know, you squeeze it, but again, not too much, so you don't want to heat it up past that special melting point. Um, and in that weird sweet spot is where you get these metamorphic rocks. Um, but just like it says metamorphism that's what you have to do to an igneous or sedimentary rock and there's actually a lot of different ways that you can metamorphose a rock to turn it into this third part of the rock cycle a metamorphic rock right and so the probably the most easy to grasp one certainly the one i think would think of first is recrystallization of the rock which is where we we don't really change the mineral makeup of the rock but we end up with different sized mineral grains right and this one whether you know it or not is one that everyone's probably super familiar with uh limestone 
So that is a sedimentary rock, right? Precipitates right. from the ocean. And that was a very, very elementary explanation of where limestone comes from. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's made up of calcium carbonate. And if you look in fancy hotel lobbies or possibly your own kitchen, you might have a marble countertop. Marble is, or limestone is the protolith for marble, which is a metamorphic rock. And all you've done through heat and pressure is change the size of the calcite and the calcium carbonate crystals in the limestone into this new thing, marble. Right. And like you said, that's probably one of the more common examples. And that's one that can occur with relatively low pressure and temperatures. Right. Exactly. And it's also a reason that marble's probably not the best thing to use for countertops because limestones are very frequently aquifers. There's lots of porosity and permeability in there. They hold on to a lot of water. And so marble's the same way. You know, you got this white marble countertop, spill your red wine, you're hosed. Well, and you may have to correct me on this if I'm wrong, because it's been a while. But if you do the classic test, of whether something's a carbonate or not by dropping just a couple drops of acid on it. Limestone should fizz like crazy, and mm-hmm. marble is pretty anemic unless you scratch it up with your knife some and make a little powder. Um, yeah, it still does it, though, because it's still calcite. Because remember, recrystallization is still the same minerals, just in different sizes. Um, so It's still thinking- calcite, but it seems to be not as easy to get the same It is less reaction. reactive, yeah, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's still it's still there. So if you spill something that is slightly acidic, now you've scratched your marble countertop chemically as well. So I'm, I'm very anti-marble countertop. I don't know if you've caught this. Yeah, I can tell. Uh. <laughs> but that's you're right. That's probably one of the easiest ones to think about when you're thinking about metamorphic rock. Okay, so you've done something to it. All the ingredients stay exactly the same. You just have a different size of crystal. Right. But that is not nearly the only way that rocks get metamorphosed. No, there's my favorite way, which is phase change, which is hard to understand, (laughs) to say (laughs) the least. (laughs) Um, So phase change is where you transform one mineral into another mineral, so a polymorph, that is the same composition, but it's got this different crystal structure. So if you remember... When we talked about minerals, you know, a specific crystalline structure is one of the definitions, you know, that makes up a mineral. So on this atomic scale, when you heat or pressurize these rocks, you actually rearrange the atoms to form these polymorphs. Right. So the chemical formula of the mineral has to stay the same. So if you're looking at calcium carbonate, which is CaCO3, then you could be looking at calcite or you could be looking at aragonite. They're both CaCO3, but like you said, the atoms are arranged in different ways. So if you look at a a plot of Gibbs free energy versus these different assemblages, each of these stable or metastable crystal configurations would be a local minima on that plot because we always want to get to a lower stable state right. with these minerals. Exactly. So while this aragonite calcite thing isn't exactly metamorphism, it's a good example um, because we have aragonite that forms. And what it tells you is that, you know, 
just like John just said, there's a different environment that that's stable in. Aragonite's not stable currently in the oceans, but we know in the past it has been. Um, so there's a different set of conditions. So that's what these polymorphs can tell you in metamorphic rocks is that, you know, you've got this certain assemblage in a protolith and then due to whatever special combination of temperature and pressure this rock is undergoing during metamorphism yields a certain new mineral. Well, a certain polymorph of the minerals that were in the protolith. And that's exactly. a good gauge of what's happened, you know, exactly. You can experimentally do this, right? Uh, a good gauge of what's happened temperature and pressure-wise to this metamorphic rock. Right. So hearkening back to some of the other shows where we've talked about experimental petrology. Exactly. This is one of those things where you can put it in a pressure cell and do your worst and <laughs> see what you get out the other side. Uh, we should we should okay. really have someone on to talk about that because those pressure cells where you make polymorphs are crazy. That's a really We really should. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> that's a cool experimental setup. Um, but this is just so cool to me. It's my favorite one. Well, I clearly don't know anything about metamorphic rocks, but <laughs> this one's really cool because <laughs> to me, it's really neat to think like you have to heat it and squeeze it, not enough to melt it, but so much that the actual atoms start to rearrange themselves into a new crystalline structure. That's really cool. It is very cool. And there's all kinds of fun diagrams you can look at of yes, and bond so, energy versus yeah. distance. and I feel like yeah. phase change is one of the best sort of ones to look at in terms of trying to figure out the tectonic you know, history of these metamorphic rocks. I don't know if that's true. That's just my sort of feeling about it. Well, you know, it's very closely related to the next mechanism, which right. is neocrystallization. So new crystals yep yeah. um yeah. and so now this is where instead of just rearranging the crystalline to a new crystalline lattice or crystalline structure you're actually making new minerals through chemical reactions of whatever was in the protolith right so it's no longer caco3 for example that breaks up the calcium goes into something else maybe some kind of clay and the carbon and oxygen go into some other mineral. And so you fundamentally, you don't form polymorphs, you form fundamentally different mineral assemblages. Right, which makes it really hard. <laughs> I feel yes. like this one's the hardest one because now you basically just have two rocks, right? You've got this protolith, but then you've got this other rock that just came from it. So like the ingredients of that rock get broken down into their elemental state and anything can happen, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> It's sort of like this, trying to clone a recipe. You know what elements or what ingredients were there, but you only have one final product and you're trying to get back to what you started with. Right, exactly. How do you deconstruct a brownie? Right. right. <laughs> like, that's really hard. But if you have like a brownie and a crunchy old brownie, they're, they're still similar. I don't know. That's a bad example. but <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess you could think about processes like caramelization uh, mm, yeah. or mm -hmm. browning of meat. I mean, those are all chemical reactions that are not fundamentally changing the elements that are there, but they're rearranging them. Right, exactly. Caramelization, that's a good one. I'm going to use that in class next time. <laughs> yeah, though, though melting the sugar, you might be closer to igneous, so... That is, that is true. Um, I did have somebody answer a question about deserts and spelled it desserts, 
the whole time on the last exam last week. So <laughs> speaking of, yeah. Um, so neo so I think this one's the coolest, really. Really? Because oh, I think it's so hard. <laughs> I, it's definitely hard, but out of these, I think it's the coolest because you are totally rearranging everything and getting something new at the other side. It's the closest thing to alchemy that there is in geology. <laughs> oh, challenge accepted. I don't know if that's true. I'm going to I'm going to find out though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, like I said, we can't change the elements that are there. Right. <laughs> but we're changing the arrangement so much that's a completely different material, which I just think is very cool. Right, exactly. Instead of just squeezing enough that it changes its crystal and structure, which is even cooler. <clears throat> but <laughs> I figured this next one's all you, man. This seems like it's right up your little earthquake rock deforming alley. <laughs> well, so there are definitely people that work on this. I was obviously not one of them. No. Uh, <laughs> but so this is pressure solution, which mm -hmm. if you apply an extreme amount of stress, you can actually dissolve a mineral, <laughs> move it, and re-precipitate it or something different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you're talking about processes like, I don't know, well, movement of salt, I guess, would be one. See, this one is hard for me to sort of fathom as a metamorphic process. Yeah, it, it's almost, it's almost sedimentary if you're, exactly. if you're precipitating it chemically, then it would be sedimentary. Right, right. And that's, that's like, I think of dissolution reprecipitation, which is a sedimentary process. Um, and so this one's sort of hard for me to lump into metamorphism. But I guess, I mean, you get, just like you just said, you get new stuff, too. Right. And the geochemists can yell at me <laughs> about this if it's wrong, because I would very much like to know. But I think of pressure solution as being pretty much like regulation. Ooh, okay, yeah. So regulation is this process. There's a, a famous demo that you can do. Get a big block of ice, take a copper wire, and hang a couple weights off the end of it, and then just set the wire over the center of the ice. Put it in the freezer so it stays cold. And if you take a time-lapse video of it, you will see the wire move all the way down through the ice, and if you come back at some later time, the wire will be sitting on the ground on the floor, having gone all the way through the block of ice, but the block of ice was not cut. And so what happens here is on the leading edge of the wire, the pressure is high enough that the ice actually melts, the water squirts around to the back side of the wire, and freezes again. And in so freezing, releases its latent heat, which gets conducted through the copper wire to the cold face to help melt more ice. Yeah, exactly. Until it pops so out the bottom. That is how I conceptualize to myself pressure solution happening yeah okay because that, that is purely a pressure driven phenomena yeah yeah which is exactly what we're talking about here right hmm. that makes sense so um, pressure solution is a very cool process that is something like that i didn't really look at but when you're dealing with tectonic stresses it becomes very important right because you can tell directions of stresses based on how these sort of these new minerals in these pressure solution veins would align, right? Right. So do you get all kinds of funky uh, boudin sausage looking 
<laughs> veins that can tell you what the direction of maximum horizontal stress was. Good old boudinage texture. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh-huh. but a related method, I would say, would be doing something with hot fluid. So we've got pressure from whatever setting you're in, and then you're pumping hydrothermal fluids through and altering the rock that way. So you get a heat and pressure double team there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's pretty easy to imagine what the um, addition of these hot fluids would do to help metamorphose the rock and also to help make because i so get stuck when i'm talking about pressure solution like i said on the sedimentary process but that addition of these hydrothermal fluids is also where you can pick up juicier new ions to start precipitating new minerals as well Uh, but before we move on to what the textures change into there's one last guy which is also sort of up your alley um, and that's plastic deformation right so we are, <laughs> we're shearing the rock in such a way that we flow it past itself. We bend it. So we have to have high temperature and high enough pressure that you can get the minerals to slide past each other. And in that process, some alteration happens because they're getting reshaped. They're getting bent. It's uh, a taffy-like process. Right. So bent, but not broken. So you're not exactly creating new guys. You're just rearranging how they interact with each other, basically, and changing their shape. Right. So it's a, a ductile process, not a brittle process. Otherwise, you'd be having earthquakes. Yeah, exactly. So I know you yeah. don't like this type of metamorphism. Then. <laughs> yeah, I know. No. None of this plastic stuff. Very boring. But plastic deformation (laughs) (laughs) is probably one of the best things to sort of intro into talking about how the heat and pressure and hydrothermal fluids actually change the textures of the rock. Exactly. So that the texture of the rock really just means how all the crystals are oriented. And there are people that measure thousands of crystal orientations in rocks (laughs) And plot these, they're called pole figures, which are uh, hemispherical projections of the crystalline axis, the C-axis. And And they're called LPOs, Lattice Preferred Orientations. Uh, And we call those poor people undergrads who have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, or, you know, some PhD students. And in fact, there, there are people in the rock deformation field that study things like mantle processes that use these big apparatus called Griggs rigs where they pack samples in uh, a salt packer. They heat them up to many hundreds of degrees and they put intense amounts of pressure on them. And they actually cause these to deform in a plastic way. And then they take them out, cut them, put them in an SEM and measure the orientation of all these crystals. Thankfully with computer programs now, yeah. And can come up with some some ideas about how mantle flow works. Wow. I've never I've never seen experiments like that. That sounds super cool. Yeah, they're they're insane. And, and of course we're talking about such intense pressures that the machine is, you know, the size of a commercial freezer and the samples maybe a centimeter on a side. Oh my gosh. That's unbelievable. Uh, 
<laughs> because you reduce the area enough, right? You can get higher pressures on yeah. the sample. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, making these new minerals and these little pressure cells is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, and I mean, it takes them a very long time to prepare these samples. Uh-huh. We definitely, I, I have somebody in mind now that we should have on to talk about this <laughs> because it's a fascinating process, but they spend their entire career looking at these textures and whether they're aligned or not all these mineral axes so if they're not uh, it might be something like marble or quartzite right exactly and that's one of the ways that we categorize um, metamorphic rocks in general and then we call these rocks that don't have preferred mineral orientations um, non-foliated is the word that we use so a quartzite looks very similar to a sandstone, except all the quartz is a lot bigger and stuck together in a different way, but it's still just a blob of quartz. So non-foliated uh, metamorphic rocks, as opposed to foliated, which are kind of the ones we've been talking about that have this preferred orientation. Right. So these could be caused by things like flow processes, where you're going to orient with relation to the direction of maximum stress. Ice does this as well. Right. Exactly. Right. Because <laughs> ice is a mineral. Um, <laughs> ice so... is a mineral, and it's a, a very good set of examples to work with. Uh, yeah, it's funny to think of that in terms of metamorphism, but it's absolutely true. Um, so a foliated metamorphic rock is going to show banding, essentially. Um, and they frequently look um, light and dark bands within the rocks as these minerals segregate themselves out during metamorphism. And then they get, it's not just regular banding because they're undergoing intense pressure as well. So the foliations are generally very wavy and pretty. Yes, these are generally very nice looking rocks. Much better than quartzite or marble. Right. Uh. (laughs) Uh, But you can do all kinds of, not just, so you just talked about an experimental setup for actually creating these foliations. But, I mean, you don't have to even do that to learn something about these metamorphic rocks. Um, You can just measure some of these foliations in terms of, basically in terms of how bendy they are, right? And that can tell you something about the pressures that these rocks underwent. Oh, yes, absolutely. So looking at the mineral assemblages, looking at the foliation of the rock, putting it together with what you know about the history of the area can give you some more insights into exactly where in the Earth's crust these processes took place. Right, exactly. And these foliations are, I mean, they're super impressive. Sometimes if they're, you know, really thick foliations and then you can have thinner bands of minerals in between them and so you get sort of different scales of folding within these foliation bands, which are kind of neat because it's kind of a mini little, um, mini little structural geology lesson all in this one rock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're cool. Metamorphic rocks are certainly pretty. Yes. And yep. it takes, I would say, a, a lot of training to know what you're talking about when you go to look at metamorphic rocks in the field. Because you're not going to be measuring strike and dip on these things, just like igneous rocks. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But you do have a lot of structural measurements you can make if you're lucky enough to be working with a foliated metamorphic rock. Um, But like we just talked about, these things that create metamorphism also are what make it difficult (laughs) to talk about. You know, you're creating new minerals and 
or you're rearranging the same minerals in a different structure to make something a polymorph. Well, I mean, we even had professors at Penn State that were looking at not just pressure solution processes around grain. So let's say you have a garnet and you're going to stress it. On the back side, there's going to be a stress shadow. Yeah. And by looking at how all these little veins twisted their way around the garnet as it was metamorphosed, they're able to extract a phenomenal amount of information about how the stress field changed over time. Yeah. Pressure shadows are a weird thing. Yes. Um, we actually just talked about that in a PhD oral exam today. Um, so I won't pretend to know that much about it, but that is, that's a crazy indicator that you can look at um, and start to talk about the history of these rocks. Oh, absolutely. But like everything else in geology, you said earlier, we classify everything. We also classify metamorphic rocks into these facies. Right. So that word is familiar, facies. Um, and so remember when we talked about Bowen's reaction series? It wasn't that long ago, was it? No, not at all. And so what we were talking about with Bowen's reaction series was that when you freeze a melt minerals form in a certain order. So metamorphic facies work something like this, which means as you change temperature and pressure, rocks metamorphose in a certain a certain way. And so you can look at whatever metamorphic rock you happen to be studying and see where it falls on this metamorphic grade chart and say something about the rough pressure and temperature conditions with which this rock had to undergo to get to what it is today. Right. And these have some pretty crazy names, uh, <laughs> but th they're bulkly grouped as geobarometers, but right. you will hear people talking about things like, Oh, this is a, a chlorite grade or a biotite grade or a green schist or a blue schist. Mm -hmm. Or if you get mm -hmm. really hot and deep and eclogite facies. Ooh, wow. That's one I haven't yeah. heard in a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Granulite, too. But I haven't heard that one as much as I've heard echologite. So, yeah. So, it's pretty interesting. And then, obviously, things with high pressures and low temperatures are not found in nature. That's not a real thing. But um, <laughs> Right. These are, these are <laughs> It would be pretty, a very I mean, strange set of circumstances. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, these are pretty, a zeolite, that's one that's probably actually familiar to a lot of people. And so all these metamorphic facies are just ways that, you know, we can estimate the history of these rocks, which is what metamorphic rocks tell you. That's something I like to talk about in, um, in my intro geology classes is like, what do each of these rocks tell you? Why are there three different rock types? What do they tell you? You know, and sedimentary rocks tell you about the ancient environment they formed in which happens to be the coolest, but, <laughs> and igneous rocks can tell you basically about the chemistry of the place they came from. So are they forming deep in the mantle, shallow, you know, are these, you know, really shallow crustal or really shallow lithospheric things. And then metamorphic rocks can tell you about their tectonic history, the heat and pressure that these protolith rocks underwent. Right. So if the history of the crust that you're looking at were right. a journal, and 
the formation of the protolith was introduced in the journal. We're looking at the coffee stains, the tears in the page, <laughs> the blood stains, the things that happened after the initial history was written, but tell you about the process that that same material oh. went through after it was written. Exactly. The uh, tears that were shed. <laughs> yes. The... <laughs> Over the microscope, trying to write out a uh, petrographic report of what happened to this awful metamorphic rock. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that got really personal right there. <laughs> Brought back um, some memories. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think we, we've done metamorphic rocks as good as we can with our limited knowledge of that. <laughs> um, something I'd like to definitely talk about in the future, because I know you probably know a little bit more about this, um, is the sort of places that tectonism occur. Because these are kind of the cool plate tectonics places, places where you're really yes. squeezing and heating stuff up. So I think that'll probably be coming sometime in the future. Yeah, definitely. And metamorphic rocks are one of those things where, like I said, there are a lot of people that specialize in them. It just so happens that what we both worked on uh, (laughs) wasn't. Yes, correct. (laughs) That's why it's taken us two years to finally admit they exist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, I I think before the show runs too long and we get ourselves in too much trouble, we should go to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. And now this is a fun paper that was sent in by (laughs) listener Daryl. And he just sent a link that says, this has everything. Biology, (laughs) fieldwork, lasers, drones, genetic engineering, explosives, and stuff that glows in the dark. (laughs) And he said, I wonder if they can genetically modify bacteria to find dinosaur bones, etc. Which will all become clearer once we talk about this paper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it doesn't have high-speed cameras, Daryl, but you're right. Everything else is super cool. <laughs> it's true. Very close. So this was in uh, Nature. Um, wait a minute. It was in Nature. Uh, so this was in Nature Biotechnology, and it is a remote detection of buried landmines using a bacterial sensor. This right. This is and really weird. <laughs> nature Biology is a different format than mm-hmm. the nature I'm used to reading. Me too. <laughs> uh, because this is written more like a letter to the editor than a paper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in the correspondence section, and it starts off to the editor. But yes, yes the, it is very odd. <laughs> yeah. But the, the idea with this technology is they want to detect landmines because that's something you want to do if you're in a place where there might be landmines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... <laughs> Non-magnetic landmines pose a particular challenge because what else are you going to do other than use mechanical minesweepers or probe the ground or all these other things that are human-intensive and dangerous? Right, exactly. Um, So non-magnetic, well, what else is there in them? And so they all share the same sort of explosive genetics, essentially, right? So most of these landmines contain... um, TNT. And over time, TNT puts off vapors. And so what Belkin et al. have done, they they explained that this was sort of tried before and they've come back and tried to reapproximate this um, experiment. And they take these little E. coli bacteria, right? And they basically encapsulate them into little balls of bacteria. So they're living in this liquid, right? 
and they sprinkle them over all these buried landmines. Right, but these aren't just any E. coli bacteria. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're special glow-in-the-dark bacteria. (laughs) These are genetically engineered, yeah. So they look for TNT and turn that into luminescence. Right, and so feasibly these landmines are putting off vapors from their TNT that these E. coli can sense and once they start to sense it they start to glow and so now you've got this elaborate optical scanning system to find these glowing bacteria and hence find your landmines right and when we say glowing it's not like you sprinkle these things and then they just light up and you can see it with your eyes where the landmines are (laughs) these this is really more of a fluorescence so they're excited with a light source right and Think CSI, where you shine the light and see all the stuff. <laughs> um, right, exactly. Except it's landmines, not disgusting bodily fluids everywhere. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so I thought this was interesting in terms of the timing, because they have a couple of different experimental setups, right, where they left these things out for different amounts of time to see how long it takes for these bacteria to get excited by these TNT vapors, and also under different substrates. Right, so they used natural sand, uh, what they called lab-quality sand. <laughs> it, it really just means it's pure SiO2, and it's, uh, it's sieved to be within the sand size. So think a uh, 50 or 70 mesh. Yeah, there you go. And then garden soil. Right. And interestingly enough, um, it didn't work very well under the garden soil. Yeah, and... You know, they said that they really need to test in a lot of different materials. Mm-hmm. But I I could imagine, though, if you have a, a soil that's got a lot of clay in it that's not very permeable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the TNT molecule is not small. Right. They would have a hard time getting up through there. Yep. And they also suggested that maybe the organics in the soil do something to help absorb the TNT uh, vapors before they get to the bacteria, which are just sprinkled along the surface. It's not like they're mixed in or anything. Um, and so it could be affecting that as well. Right. And these bacteria, since they're in these, these little three millimeter alginate beads, they're only going to survive for a few hours. So you have to have, you know, you can't sprinkle this and let it sit overnight and see what happens next morning. The mines have to have been there long enough that there's enough TNT vapor getting to the surface that within a few hours you can activate this effect. Right, exactly. Um, So this is something that they talked about at length, well, at length for the tiny amount of length of the paper, (laughs) is that, yeah, okay, this is a neat idea, but you don't want to contaminate all this soil with E. coli. And it was something I didn't even think about because I was like, oh, this is really neat. How cool to do this. Yeah, that makes sense. Then what happens, you know, if now you're introducing this entire new genome into the soil system wherever you're trying to um, scan where there's landmines, this could be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, genetically modified bacteria into an environment that may not even have that bacteria natively. It sounds like a movie plot. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and so, so. When, I, when I read those paragraphs, I was like, oh, this is scary stuff, even scarier than buried landmines, really. <laughs> yeah, and it's not the only problem. Another issue they had is their test area was relatively small. They scanned it from yeah. a distance of 20 meters, which is not bad if you're looking mm-hmm. for landmines. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but it took 15 minutes to scan. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, their their test bed, let's see, they have it up here, was 3.8 by 1.1 meters. Yeah, so tiny. So that's going to take a really long time to scan. And looking at the data, I mean, they did pick out the boxes, but it's certainly not crystal clear. It would help if they had a little bit finer resolution. Yes. So the scanning system needs a lot of optimization, which they fully acknowledge and say this is just a proof of concept test. Uh, right, exactly. In the uh, Science Mag write-up of this, um, they say that they've talked to the researchers since this, and they've been working on that, and they talk about working on fitting up this rig, the scanning rig, onto drones, potentially, and also genetically modifying the bacteria to all die within a certain amount of time just to make sure that they're dead and aren't contaminating anything. I thought those were interesting um, upgrades to the research, really. Yeah. And so, I mean, miniaturizing, there's a, there's a picture in the paper, which unfortunately is behind a paywall, uh, of the scanning rig that they used, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's the size of a four to six inch Dobsonian telescope yeah. in this paper. But by miniaturizing and putting it on a drone, you could certainly get a lot further as we're mm-hmm. seeing increasing use of drone for civilian and military applications. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Daryl. You're absolutely right. Lasers and drones and genetic engineering and explosives. That was that small two page paper did not disappoint. No, not at all. (laughs) And, you know, he brought up an interesting point of what other things could bacteria be modified to help us show. So could you look, could, could you look for a certain mineral, sprinkle this stuff on an outcrop and come back and scan it and instantly get a map of where this particular mineral that's in a certain vein in your metamorphic rock is. Mm-hmm. Exactly, which is a lot cheaper than trying to fit a robot with an XRF. So, yeah. Yeah. So, interesting ideas. It's uh, something that'll be interesting to see what happens with it in the next 10 years. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like they're moving forward with sort of perfecting it a little bit too. So, um, that'll be neat to see if there's any follow-up to this as well. Absolutely. Well, if you have an idea for a fun paper that you'd like to hear us talk about or a show or would like to send us some corrections because you study metamorphic rocks and (laughs) we didn't get something quite right, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, send John your your hate mail at show (laughs) at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always tweet us about our metamorphic ignorance at... At Don't Panic Geo, John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And swing by the uh, Swung.Rocks Slack chat room in the Don't Panic channel, where we occasionally hang out, and, well, John hangs out all the time. And uh, <laughs> we have lots of really great uh, conversations. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or 